Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. Spelled like a hearse. Hey, what's going on, guys? we got a special guest today. we got Steven Purse. He's a real estate investor. He has 50 investment properties, and he's 25 years old. 26 now. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me on, Jordan. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. We're friends. Um, we knew each other back at UT. So where does your story start? Did you always want to be a real estate investor? Where, where'd you get? So I'll where'd jump in and say it's 50 rental units, not 50 properties. But okay, that, that's, a, that's an open-ended question. Where did it all start? I guess it started in this community in New York. That's where I grew up. And then, like you mentioned, I went to the University of Tampa. That's where I first met you. We had a couple of classes together in the business school. At the time, I, I knew I wanted something entrepreneurial. That was always in the back of my head. You know, you go back in stories, five, six, seven years old, doing stuff entrepreneurial. But I didn't really know what. I had a couple of ideas about like clothing companies. I had one hat business that did take off a little bit in Tampa, but it was nowhere near the point of scaling. And I was an entrepreneurship major in my first three years in school, but with no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated, which is so scary for any you know 20 year old out there. It's like, I know I want to do something on my own, but I don't know what, and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills. And I met with a mentor up here in New York, one of those summers. And he told me, if you want to be an entrepreneur, be a finance or accounting major. And that way you, you can have those skills, have that degree to fall back on, but you can still be the entrepreneur. And so I think that's where I met you in a finance class. I, I switched to finance major in my senior year. And I first learned about real estate investing when I got my master's in entrepreneurship the year after I graduated from UT. And it was a presenter talking to us and he was talking about no money down real estate investing. And I love this story because I had a couple of friends in the class. We all sat together, you know, and it's a four hour class like UT loves to do. And there'd be a break in the middle. And we'd go outside and sit at the picnic table. And I remember the guys right away being saying, this guy's not telling the truth. He's talking about buying property with no money. That, that's not real. This guy's bullshit. And, and I'm like, well, he, he told us how he did it. And he seems very successful now. So I, I believe him. And it seems like it worked out for him. So that was definitely the light bulb moment of first hearing about real estate investing. And after that, I started listening to Bigger Pockets. This is back in 2019. Um, I actually started getting my real estate license down in Florida when I got my first job after graduating. Never finished it because the timing wasn't right. So after I graduated from the entrepreneurship course, I got a sales job because I had to get a job to pay the bills. You know, I couldn't do a six year of school. Of course. <laughs> So I got a sales job and that was probably the best thing I ever did because I was making 80 cold calls a day down in Tampa. And I got a lot of skills out of that, which really helped in the real estate world. You want me to keep going? Yeah. I mean, okay. first of all, what's the, when you corrected me at the beginning about the rental units versus investment property. What, what, what's the difference there? I have no idea. So I say units, apartments, but a property okay. is, is a property. So I have a 24 unit building. I say that's one property with 24 units. Okay, got you, got you. Makes sense. Um, so you end up getting into this job at UT, yep. after UT. You're still in Tampa now? Yep, I was still in Tampa working, you know, the nine to five grind. I was trying to, <laughs> but even with the nine to five, it's how do I do better and get out of here? You know, waking up at 4.30, going to the gym before, and then trying to do the hat stuff afterwards thinking about maybe investing in rental properties near University of Tampa that I could rent to college kids. But I had no idea what I was thinking or looking at at the time. And when COVID hit, 
I, we started working remotely. Um, it was kind of indefinitely. There was no end date. And I told my boss, Hey, I'm going to go back to New York. Didn't really, didn't really ask. And he said, okay, if you keep performing, we'll, we'll let you do that. So I went back to New York and I kept working for that sales job about six months in New York. This is still 2020. And I kept looking for a job post things. I wanted something different. Still wasn't really sure what. And in late December of 2020, I saw a job posting by Bill Hamill, Hamill Real Estate. And the title of it was just Real Estate Investor. And I had no idea what that entailed, but I was intrigued. So I applied and that's where the real estate journey started. Yeah. And what was that like for you making that jump, knowing that you're not really sure what you're getting into? It was scary. Uh, I, I The same mentor actually told me to go to finance. I really trusted him. I still do. He's a great guy, great friend, still a mentor. He told me probably not to do it. He's like, you'll probably be a property manager running around dealing with tenants. You'll hate it. It's it's not a fun job. And I really didn't know what the job would be because I was going from a growing company that had probably about a thousand employees to a job with one guy who was a real estate investor. And I didn't even really fully understand what he wanted me to do. I knew he wanted me to do some sales, some marketing, and those were things that I liked and I thought I was pretty good at. But long term, I I had no idea where I was going to go. But what I thought was, if I'm going to take the risk and and leave the corporate world, what better time to do that than, what was I, 24 at the time? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that most of us don't consider is, it's what is the offer in that moment? It's not, what could this be? And where could this go? And when you joined Bill, I I doubt Bill said, hey, we're going to get you this, this, this. And you're going to, it was all the learnings that most of us don't even think about. We just jump in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then that's what real estate investing is all about. It's about that delayed gratification. And I think shadowing a real estate investor for a full year, even unpaid, would make you more in the long term than any regular starting nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, learning from the entrepreneurs is one of the best ways to do it. And I just bring that up because if there's anyone out there who's not really sure what they want to do, shadowing someone for a week, it doesn't even have to be that much. It just needs something to change your perspective and see that there are other ways of doing this. So that because it's so easy to fall into your daily routine and that daily routine goes for a day, then a week, then a month. And then three years later, you're doing the same thing every day. And if you don't break that cycle, it's, it's hard to get that different perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you jump in, you jump in with Bill. How, how is that in the beginning? Now you're 24 years old, zero properties, zero properties, probably about 20,000 in my bank account. Um, I'd say day one, you know, it's a, I, I spent about two weeks in between the jobs and I was listening to podcasts as much as I can. I was researching real yeah. estate investing. So I wanted to go in there and seem like I knew what I was doing, even though I was <laughs> as green as could be. And I, I would ask him like, what do you think about cap rates? And I would use these keywords, and, <laughs> no, but I wanted to seem like I knew. And when I first started out, I took over the marketing. So social media, we had some plans to grow grow the exposure. And I started cold calling 50 to 80 calls a day. Cause that's what I was good at. And he was looking for, for new leads. Yeah. Oh, for his deals. Yeah. For his deals. I was, I was fully W2 at that time. I was just an employee. Okay. So you're helping him out. Uh, you guys are looking for leads and he's, is he syndicating deals at this point or what, what's Bill up to? So that would be the start of his syndication career. Bill had, 28, 29 years as a owner operator here in upstate New York in the Albany, New York market, buying ones, twos, threes, fours, all the way up to eight, 10 units. And they were scattered around the capital district. And he burned out of managing, you know, 300 units at probably a hundred different property locations. Cause you think about what goes into that when it snows, plowing different <laughs> driveways. Yeah, exactly. You got a hundred different roofs to worry about. And he burned out of that and decided that he wanted to sell that portfolio, start investing in larger assets, preferably in the capital district and Tampa, Florida market, which was a great coincidence that he was interested in the Tampa, Florida market and I had experience there. So I could tell him which streets were good, which streets were bad. That really helped us hit it off in the interview. And that was the start of his 
syndication journey. So when I was cold calling, a lot of the times we were looking for properties to syndicate. Okay. Yeah. And just to give everyone perspective, the syndication is essentially what syndication mean? Just to give so it a syndicate. A- yeah. When you, a, a syndicate's a group of people with a like-minded interest. And a, when you syndicate a real estate investment, you formally register that investment with the SEC. So there's a lot of legal work. There's a lot of guidelines that go into it because you are taking investors capital and applying that towards an asset and giving them an expected return. And then eventually the return that, that the property delivers. Okay. Yeah. So someone buys a 50 unit, hundred unit, $10 million will raise $8 million. Well, I'm going to cut you off right there. Our our biggest tool here is leverage. If I'm buying a $10 million asset, I never want to raise eight. (laughs) I love that. Say we're raising 3.2, 3.3. We might have an offering. So like 25 to 30% of the raise? Yeah, it's going to be- The rest is bank finance? 25% down payment. You're going to account for, I'd say another 10% just to cover closing costs, the acquisition fee, which goes to the syndicator sponsors. Because if you're spending three months trying to find one deal, you need to get paid when you find that deal. Because of course, you're, you're looking for a deal for three months, not, not making any money. So it's typically an acquisition fee anywhere from two to three, five percent, depending on how good the okay. deal is. And then most of these deals that we're looking for are also going to have a capex budget, which stands for capital expenditures, because we're looking for deals that have value add potential. That's a big buzzword, you know, in the real estate investing market. And people will say value add when there really isn't a value add. We're looking for a lot of meat on the bone. That would be a property in an amazing location that hasn't been looked after in 30 years because someone across the country owns it and they don't really watch after their manager. So there's rental increase potential of 30, 40% if you go in and you redo the hallways, redo some units. So we're going to put that in the budget too as part of that capital stack. Okay. The capital stack so, is equity stack. Capital stack is what your your total money that you're raising from the investors. Okay, so you'll raise the money. Okay, so I get what you're talking about. So you're saying let's go about it. Let's call it a ten million. We're going to raise three point five million. Yep. Twenty five percent for the down payment, which would be two point five million. Then the other uh, million dollars will be. Um, any improvements, anything, uh, closing costs, and then the people who were finding it. Exactly that. Acquisition fee, closing costs, capital expenditures, and then reserves. Okay. And then to keep the money extra. And when you said uh, value add, you're talking more along the lines of like, we have a property, it needs new countertops, new floors, and right now it's going at a $900 a month rent. But if we fix these, then we can do like 1500 Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's one way. And that's the most common way. Value add, as it sounds like, it's adding value. So what's the value of a property? You get the value of the property by finding the NOI, net operating income, and dividing that by the cap rate. That's the most common way to, to evaluate a commercial asset. So how do you raise that value or add value? You increase the NOI. Easiest way to do that is to increase revenue or to decrease expenses. Hopefully, you can do both. Okay, got so you. If you, if you yeah. Say you can decrease expenses by 30% for some weird reason. <laughs> that's also a way to increase that NOI and that value. And that's where it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's when it's more than uh, a certain amount of units. And then yeah, so any, any commercial property would be- business. Yeah, any commercial property would be five units or more. One and to four units would be residential. Okay, and these run like this, where it's the NOI and the cap rate and all that information, right? Yep, one to four unit residential properties, they're valued by comparables. So how much did the house across the street sell for? Well, they have a pool, so that might be 30,000 more. So we subtract the pool, we, we look at a couple other things, and then we get their value by comparing it to, to similar assets that sold in that area. Compared to the commercial it's all about that NOI. That's what the bank's going to value that asset at because it's a business. Yeah. Okay. So it's purchasing a business. Interesting. Um, so then you go in with Bill. You guys are, in essence, selling portions of the portfolio. 
looking for new properties to invest in at this moment? And were you thinking you were going to get involved in this or you were just kind of seeing where you can assist and seeing what can be made of it? It's hard to say day one. I, I definitely had interest right away, but I wasn't 100% sure I was going to be a real estate investor day one. But the more I did it, the more I liked it, the more I, I enjoyed what I was doing and felt like I was getting better at it, got a better understanding of the market, more networking in the area. And I don't know exactly when I decided that I'd probably do this for the rest of my life, but it, it didn't take too long. Yeah. That's incredible. And I love hearing people in their 20s who are like, this is it. Like, I love where I'm at right now because there's so many people who struggle with that. Um, so it's kind of that leap you took um, that really opened your eyes to what, what could be. Absolutely. You have to take the leap. And I, I totally sympathize with that because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it's so frustrating. Like I noticed it in other areas of my life back when I first moved home and I was still doing the sales job, I took golf so seriously because I didn't have anything else in life that I was taking that seriously. You know, like I, I felt like I had to be the best I could on the golf course. And now it's like, no, I'm so focused on real estate investing that when I play golf, I'm just there to have fun with friends and it changes your perspective on other things. 100%, 100%. So that's phenomenal. So you go in the first year, when did you make the goal? Cause I think you had a goal of 10 units, right? In that first year, or am I mistaken on that? No, I think you're right. Yeah, that was, I remember, that was I remember my goal. Yeah, a, I yeah, remember seeing the post, and I was like, "How's he gonna get ten units? That's crazy." I had no <laughs> idea either. I remember I told that to my mom, and she just kind of laughed. Like, okay, okay, good luck with that. Yeah. And when I first moved home, I moved back with my parents. You know, I was living on my own in an apartment <laughs> from eight, 18 to twenty four, and then moved back home, and the food got a lot better. But I made that goal of 10 units because Bill is big on writing down your goals as any entrepreneur should be. And you have to find that sweet spot of it's realistic, but it's hard to do. And then we can really get into personal development and talk about making an annual goal and then making that a three-month goal and see what happens. But yeah, that was my goal my first year. I think within a month, when I realized I wanted to start doing this, I had a 10-unit goal. And how would you... What was the, and I love what you brought up right there is that you have to go longer term and then break that goal down. Like I did that for, I believe the year was 2019 and I wanted to run a marathon and not just like run a marathon, but like run a real race and like do the whole mm -hmm. thing. And like every month I would do a check. Where are you at, Jordan? Can you run three miles? <laughs> Can you run seven? Can you run 12? I, but the the personal development is the same for everything. It's the same for real estate. It's the same for anywhere you want to be in life. Like you want to grow a side business, are sales increasing? Yes, no, maybe. Why? The, these are things that we all need to be aware of because this works with everything. You, you have to break down the 12-month goal, but I, I don't think I was clear enough what I was referring to. And I can't remember who said this. I think I heard it on a podcast, but he also has a book. And what what they say is, their company would make 12 month goals every year. And he had a good company, you know, 15, 20 year long. And they're, they're just hitting their goals, yeah. kind of like we're talking about. And I think this guy had a consultant talk to him. And the consultant said, That 12 year goal you make every year, make that your goal in the first quarter. And the guy responded, That's, that's not realistic. You know, we're barely hitting our annual goals. And he said, Just do it, see what happens. And that first time they did it, he hit their annual goal in their first quarter because they raised the bar that high. And that raised the employee's performance that much. And they, they hit that annual goal in the first quarter. Gotcha. Because you don't believe it's possible until it is. And that's where most of the people don't do something to the deadline. Exactly. I know exactly what you're saying. So yep. if you just set it for quicker, then people are more likely to be like, yo, we got to get on the ball. <laughs> we got to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love these stories, man. There's another one. There is a sales professional. And this one might be a little, maybe not real. I've seen it shared a couple of times where there was someone who started a sales job and say, I don't remember the exact numbers, but say the sales goal was 10 million is what she heard on her first day. And she was working remote during COVID and she finished up the year and she got like 9 million and she was an overachiever. So she really felt bad about herself for not hitting the goal. And yeah. she got invited to the company's annual party and she hadn't really met any people yet. She's working remote during COVID. And there was a typo in that first day email and the annual sales goal was 1 million. And she ah. was like the highest achiever ever because she hit 9 million. But that just shows if you think the goal is 10, what could you really do?
And if she thought yeah. the goal was one, maybe she would have stopped around one and a half. Yeah, no, it really is because once you have these goals, it sets your expectation and then you're able to go with or go, go without. So Absolutely. we go with the 10 units. I'm still confused on how you got 10 units. How'd you, how'd you go about that? As a 24 year old with probably 20,000 in my bank account, I think my base salary with Bill was 36,000 a year. <laughs> <laughs> how do you get 10 units? So it's, it's all about low or no money down real estate investing. And yeah, we could do a whole podcast on that. I guess we are right now. There's a lot of different ways to do it. So syndications is just one tool to purchase real estate with low or no money down. Another one is buying your first primary residence. You can get an FHA loan. That was the first property I acquired. So I started working with Bill in January. June 4th of 2021, I closed on a duplex. The duplex was listed at 205. I ended up purchasing it at 205, but with a $10,000 seller concession. So okay. a seller concession for anyone that's not familiar is when you increase the purchase price from after what you already had a agreement on and the seller reimburses you that amount with a check at the closing just to cover your oh. down payment and your closing costs. And I also had an agreement with Bill that I was getting one third of his brokerage commissions at that time. So this, this property that I only needed to put three and a half percent down on because it's an FHA loan, I got 10,000 back in the seller concession. And then I got a commission check from Bill and I ended up profiting $200 from that purchase just, just from the acquisition. I, <laughs> I love it because it's just getting creative with it. Yeah. It's figuring out ways where it can work. And this is, I want to note everyone, this is in a ridiculous market. Like, this is when yeah. it's chaos. Like, this was as, not as 10 competitive. Years ago. Yeah. yeah. This is this June is 2021 not... when I got a 2.75% loan rate. So that, that just shows how competitive it was. And it's in a this great so, area. <laughs> this is hilarious. I got my first condo March 2021, and like, I'm still here. So I, I, I got to hear where it comes next. So, like, what was the next? So we get the duplex, then what? Yep. After that, it's staying. I'll credit Mike Terravella for the quote of being aggressively patient and setting okay. your criteria of, of what you want and staying patient until you see something that fits that criteria. Because when you're networking with investors every day, you're making cold calls every day, you're going to look at 30 properties a day. You're going to underwrite five a day. And it's easy to get the shiny object syndrome and start chasing stuff every day, but you really have to stay focused on what you want. So the next property that came to my attention, this was actually, it was still June, 2021. It was only about a week or two later. It wasn't that long. Someone, a broker that we work with called in to tell Bill about an off-market eight unit in Schenectady, New York, which is right where I grew yeah. up. And Bill is at the point of not investing in any cities. He only invests in the townships around cities. And we can okay. get into why that is later. But this was in a city in Schenectady. And it was eight units. He's looking for 20 units or more. So right away for those two factors, it was a non-starter for him. But he told the broker, hey, Stephen in my office, you know him. He'll probably be interested in it when you tell him about it. I went to look at it and... As soon as I walked in, he just, just knew right away that that was a good one and I was interested. And how'd you, um, one sec, let's dive into the criteria portion because I think yeah. that's important. Because, I mean, I have the issue a lot where there's people like, oh, five units for a million dollars. That's a good deal. I have no idea if that's a good deal. <laughs> like, I have no idea what's a good deal, what's a bad deal. Am I, what I'm finding on Zillow is that good? Is the loop that good? Like, what's good? And what what does that even mean? First of all, and how can and someone so, like identify their criteria? That would be my yeah. question. Yeah, identifying your criteria is first finding a location. If you're just getting started, I'd say invest in where you know, where you know the streets. That's your biggest advantage because any big company can't compete with you when you know that this corner is better than that corner in the same block. Their algorithm can't can't see that. Beyond that, it's finding out what you can afford, 
what, what kind of asset you're looking for. Are you looking for a new build? Are you looking for a hundred year old building that you can improve because you have construction skills yourself? So there's a lot of different factors that you have to narrow down. And then you're going to get, you're going to get a feeling when you, when you're looking at stuff every day, you're underwriting stuff, you'll know when the right one comes across your plate. So on that one, I didn't end up closing on that until November. It took a long time. But when I first walked it with the broker, I walked inside. Like I said, I got that feeling right away. And I told him, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this. And he even questioned it because I, I looked pretty young. You know, I was 24, maybe looked 21. And he's like, so yeah. you're, you're going to buy buy this on your own? You sure you can afford this? And I said, yeah, I'm going to figure it out. I'll get it. Just confidently, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. At the time, yeah. I had no idea how I was going to close on it. Yeah. No, I love that. And I've had similar instances in my life where it's just, I'm, I'm doing this. Like, I don't know how, but we're going to do this. And I think there's a component of that of you'll find a way. Like when it's declared, it's in the world, it's happening. And that, that's probably when you feel the most alive when you're like, holy crap, I'm doing this. This is wild. Yeah, I love the analogy in real estate investing of fishing. So uh, I'm spending days, weeks, months with my line in the water. And then that's the time when I have a bite. And now it's, you know, we're going 100 miles an hour trying to reel this thing in. I'm doing everything I can to, to figure out a way to close on this. And so what were the different strategies that you thought of off the bat? If you could think back to that moment, because obviously you have the way that worked, but like, what was the approach? Is it like, do we get 25 grand from everyone we know? Like, what, what were your thoughts through it? That sounds like the biggest headache getting 25 grand from <laughs> 10 different people. So the, the property was listed at 660, let's say 675. I talked him down to 667, even though he knew it was a deal at 675. And a lot of it comes down to the underwriting. I, I really knew the numbers. I mentioned that finance degree. And I would, Bill had me underwriting and I'll thank him for that. He, he kind of forced me to do it because he knew that's how you can identify a good deal. And I'd say my favorite way to, I'm going to plug my podcast, Collecting Real Estate. My favorite way to collect real estate with no or low money down is to find a down payment from a fi- private investor. Get So that will be a 25% that we talked about. Get yeah. the bank to cover the 75%. If you know that you're getting an either an undervalued asset or a value add asset, you can raise that value by about 30%, refinance, pay back your private investor, and then you just have one bank note and your your cash flowing forward. That's that's the secret sauce right there. Okay. So let's break that down. So that means it was 675 or 667. Yep. 25%. What's that like? 200 ish, 200K ish. So when I first underwrote it, it was about 175, I believe. But these were four duplexes all next to each other. And their townhouse okay. style duplexes are great. The three floors of living space. But I considered it an eight unit because they're all on one property. They take up one block, but they were registered as four separate duplexes. So I had to close on these with four separate closings and I had to get four separate loans. And they're all residential. Oh my God. Yeah. So when you're investing in a residential property, you also have to pay the first year of taxes and insurance. That's something to keep in the back of your mind. And I I kind of forgot that even though I just closed on a property in June, which I pay the taxes and insurance on ahead of time, you have to keep that in mind and that's going to be a part of it. And it's connected. The taxes are pretty high. It covers water and some other things, but they're still pretty high. And I, I thought at first I only needed 175, but then we got closer and I was seeing what we needed. It ended up being 225. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, the, the, my favorite thing about this is that you're, anybody can re-listen to this podcast whenever they want and they'll just be able to grasp little nuggets like you just said right there. Dude, I completely blanked that you pay the taxes yeah. <laughs> in that year. Um, so you end up, so you went with a private lender, you ended up raising the money. So I raised 150 from one private lender and 75 from another lender. Okay, got you. And this, when people use the term private lender, this can be anybody with that type of capital. Yes, and, and any you know, family, friends, anyone, either a colleague, anyone in your network, 
not a hard money lender. We consider a hard money lender those guys that you see on the street corner, quick, quick loans, get your payday loan here. That's more of a hard money lender. I guess that's different than payday loans, but that's more of an institutional business. A private lender is someone that's just writing you a check. And what's the big difference between those two, if you had to say? Yeah. So a hard money lender is going to be a much higher rate. There's okay. usually going to be rate. correct. Yep. And there's going to be the terms are going to be a lot more strict. So with a private lender, you can really write your own terms. You can agree on whatever you want to agree on. You can make it a handshake deal. You can put them in second position mortgage. You can, it's a lot more flexible with a private lender. Usually the hard money guys, they're going to have an attorney working with them. Almost always have an attorney. They're going to draft their own loan documents that they have criteria for. And there's going to be terms for it with a higher interest rate. And when you say terms, what do you what do you mean by that? Like you got to pay me every thirty days? Is it every forty five days? I'm just trying to simplify it so everyone really understands. Yeah, the yeah. So there's there's a lot we can get into with terms. I'll say on my most recent deal, I did use a hard money lender, and one of the terms was there's a twelve month term, which means that loan is good for twelve months, but there's a seven month minimum on it, which means I have to keep the loan for seven months but it's only really good for 12 months. So that, that's one example of the term of the loan. Something else that might be in the loan doc that you really have to keep careful of because these hard money lenders, they can, you have to find one that you trust. If they have a good attorney who's going to read over the loan documents, they can get weird with the writing in those loan documents. Say your net worth drops by a certain amount, they can foreclose on the property. Say the NOI on the property drops by a certain amount, they could foreclose on it. They could put in writing in the loan documents that if they don't feel good about the investment, they can foreclose on it. So you really have to read those loan documents from a hard money oh, lender, wow. like, like, like you would from a bank lender too. But that's the difference where a private lender, they're usually writing you a check. You're doing a handshake. They already know, like, and trust you. It's more of a, they're trusting you to pay them. And if they don't, then they can take the property, kind of. For the private lenders? Yes. It's difficult because usually- It's so unique. This, there's so many nuances. Yeah. There's, there's so many different ways you can structure it. And usually in this scenario, the bank is always going to have the first position on the property, okay. which means if, if there's a default, the bank's the one that's oh, going to get Oh, because they have the 75%. The title. Yeah. Exactly. So usually you can put them in second position, which does give them a lien to the property, but usually they're not even going to have a position on the property. That's something that you agree on with them. You know, maybe if you default, they get your car. <laughs> you, you can get creative <laughs> with it. That, that's the beautiful thing about this whole this whole space is that you can get so creative with everything you do. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think. That's- and then we can get into you can have debt partners or equity partners. So I could raise that capital and give them a certain amount of equity, or I could raise that part that capital and give them a certain interest rate on the debt. So these, these were debt partners. I'll, I'll always prefer to have debt partners because I think the equity is where that delayed gratification is, which we mentioned before. And that's yeah. where, you know, cash flow gets you rich. The equity builds wealth. I'd rather yeah. have the wealth in the long term. And also when you have equity partners, they're a partner on the deal and now you have business partners. Now you have someone that you're kind of in bed with legally and that that adds a whole nother element to your day-to-day life. Yeah, so let's uh, dive into that a little bit. I was tracking on everything, but I just think for the audience, there might be a little explanation there. So the debt portion is essentially anybody who's giving you a loan. Anyone who's... Yep. And then so the equity... Ex- yeah, you go. I'll say in this example, the debt partners gave them 8% interest only. So on that okay. 225, I was paying out 1,000 to the 150,000 and I was paying out 500 to 75,000 every month in just interest. So I still owed them all of that capital, the 150 and 75 loans. I still owe them all of that. And I'm paying them 8% interest on the loan every month. Got you. And then when you do your whole refinance, they'll get paid out their original 150, 75. Deal done. Over. So that was the plan. And the refinance is actually happening next week. And it worked out perfectly. I got a valuation where I'm getting paid out 235 on the refi, on the cash out refi. So I yeah. have just enough to, to pay them back and actually profit 10000 on the acquisition of that property. 
But if we get into it, I purchased a property a couple of weeks ago and I need that 235 to have improvements on the property. So we're going to let that debt snowball a little bit. And they're very happy keeping that loan out. They like getting that 8% every month. So, you know, I'm paying them on the first of the month and it's better than they do in the market right now. They guaranteed 8%. So in, in, in theory, I was going to pay them back and I got the proof of concept because we, we got more than we needed to pay them back, but they're going to, they're going to have to wait a couple months for that. Oh, they're still riding. Yeah. They're happy to keep that money out. Okay. Because for them, it's like passive income and they don't even have to think about it. For them, I'm just writing them a check on the first month. Yeah. And they know they're getting the money back eventually. Yeah. And if we were going to go equity partner. Now it's, we don't owe them the money, but they'll might have a 10%, 20%, whatever it is, percentage on that property. And they might be, I think we should do this, or I think we should do this. And you have to have that conversation. Exactly. I, I typically say 30% for an equity partner. If they're coming up with a down payment, they'll get 30% equity, which does still give you the, the managing control, control of the asset, but you still have a partner on that deal. Whether it's you weekly talk, reporting, yeah. monthly reporting, whatever, it, it, you lose control. And it's equity. more work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got you. Um, very cool. That makes a lot of sense. I'm fully there. So we're at 10 units. Because basically, the way I'm viewing this uh, is as we go through your path, we are touching on so many different real estate structures mm-hmm. that it's like, I, because originally I was going to ask you about all these different ones, but we're learning through your life as you went through these experiences. So I love it. we, <laughs> this is great. So we get to 10 and we are uh, still in 2021. Yeah, that was November 4th of 2021. And I closed on the eight units. It took from like okay. late June to November to close on that. And that's a long time usually, or that's normal? Like, yeah, I'd say 60 days is normal. So that was, that was a while. Okay. Got you. So now that's how we get the duplex. Get the eight, 10, square, done. Reach our goal, amazing. What's next? Where do we go next? Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> um, after, after the eight units, you know, it, it was a different dynamic between Bill and myself because at this point I have 10 units, which is bringing in about 12,000 a month in revenue. That alone is at least a part-time job managing these units, managing these properties. I had so much to learn on the property management side. So I didn't have time to be doing 50 cold calls a day anymore. And nor did I want to. Oh, okay. I had done that for a while. Yeah. So we, we really had a different dynamic there in the office. And at that point, we had started our collecting real estate brand, which was taking a lot of time doing podcasts and monthly meetups and, and other marketing that way. So that was something that we had to figure out. And starting January 1st of 2022, I was no longer W-2 with Bill, which was really hard. I mean, talk about taking another leap. I <laughs> lost a salary as a, at that point, 25-year-old and yeah. had to get by. Yeah. So I had my duplex, but I was going back to mom and dad's for dinner. <laughs> you got to make it work. <laughs> exactly. got to make it happen. Parents are sitting there. Why are you eating dinner with us? You got ten units, and it's like I don't. I'm working on it. Yeah, <laughs> you got the units, but yeah, you got you got you got the units. But at that point, you're not getting a lot of profit. I'm still two hundred twenty five thousand in debt, and it's it's not easy. <laughs> no, not at all. And everyone wants to think it's all glamorous and it's this easy life. And it's like, dude, you you get paid cash flow, right? Like that's what they say on TikTok just cash flow. It's, a, it's, a, it's a lot easier to have a check every other week that you know is going to be there <laughs> absolutely with the w2 yeah. um so you and bill changed the dynamic you are now yeah. partners with bill explain to us what is this uh i and i didn't want to include it in the intro but you guys have several different businesses you got going on you got the media the syndication and what was the last one? Or so my, my own right investment now? company would be the last one. So right now I have three businesses that I work on. The first is Hamill Real Estate. That's Bill's brokerage. I'm an agent at that brokerage registered in New York. 
And that's also our syndication business. So that's where we're looking to acquire more multifamily assets. The second business is collecting real estate. That's our podcast, our monthly meetup. And we're looking to expand that to Tampa, Florida soon because more than half of our engagement is actually from Tampa, which is really interesting. So hopefully that'll be in the near future. And then the third business, which is being technically founded next week, is SDP Real Estate, which is my own investments. So Bill and I are in a great spot where he has investments on his own. I have investments on my own, but we also have this partnership for syndications where if the right opportunity pops up, we, we know how to execute on a syndication together. Yeah. And I, I one of my favorite things about your guys' relationship, because I've gotten to see, uh, I met Bill and I got to know both of you guys, is that Bill has like, uh, been there, done that, but you're the new blood, like, that multi-generational thing is so that multi-generational mentorship is so pivotal, um, especially if they're willing to assist. And now you guys are working together hand in hand, not that we do everything together, but we can work as a unit and you have different networks and you can collaborate on that. And that allows you guys to both be successful. So I say that because anybody who's out there, who's in their twenties or thirties and is looking for some sort of guidance in some sort of way, you really want to partner up with someone who's been there, done that, who might be 50, 60, 70s. They might be towards the end and they just want to teach or they might still be in the journey and bring you in the trenches with you. Whatever that is, I've seen this dynamic happen several times and it really accelerates growth. What yeah, do you think so, about that? It, yeah, it's, it's so cool looking back at it because I have no idea where I'd be right now if I didn't meet Bill. Like I had the opportunity to... I had the ability to acquire 50 units by 25, but without meeting Bill, would I have unlocked that ability? Would have I known how to do it? Absolutely not. And going back to finding the mentor, it might not always be a fit. I think we mentioned this earlier, but at least try it. And at this age, what do you really have to lose? And then what's, what's really great is now we have a third guy in the office who's a, a student at Notre Dame, shout out to Kevin, and he is crushing it right now. And so I'm trying to shift my focus to help him grow our business. And I get a little taste of what Bill went through where this guy's in college. He's so smart. And I get to help him learn about multifamily investing. And he's going through the same steps that I went through a year and a half ago. Yeah. And it's just phenomenal growth very quickly. Yeah, so um, and it's just we'll go back to the story. Yeah. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. So I, I have fun telling the story. So we were in January 2022, and I think that's right about the time where we got a lead on a 15-unit building in Troy, New York, which is a city in the Capital District, which Bill, like I said, doesn't like to invest in cities, but this one was just too good to pass up on. And this was actually a call in from the same broker that sold me the eight-unit, <laughs> and he sold Bill the building that our office is in. So a little tip there, just it's all about who you know, because he yeah. is going down a list of five people before it ever goes on the market and Bill's at the top of that list. So if you're the first person someone calls when they have a lead, your chances of finding a good deal are a lot higher. It's all networking. So he calls us about this 15 unit. We look at the numbers. We say the average rent's 950 on these two bedroom apartments in the growing part of the city. And they have granite <laughs> countertops and a hardwood floor. We got to see this. So we went and saw it and yeah, it was, it was a great deal. The numbers are great. Going back to that value add, we underwrote the market rent for those units about 1300 a month. And the average yeah. rent when we acquired it, it was like 950. So just to show you that 30% rental growth and get that whole refi and cash out model. So that ended up being my next acquisition and my first syndication. So okay. Bill and I closed on that syndication, I believe, March 28th of 2022. And how many, so that was a Bill and you together. Yep. You and Bill worked on it together and just to slow it down. So it was, the rent was 900. We brought it up to 950, brought it up to 1300. There wasn't, the floors were good. Countertops were good. There wasn't really money that had to go into it, but we, just we, by raising the rent or you did we, we put some money into it. We knew that there was some areas because on a lot of these, like I said, they're, they're not looked after by a really good manager because a really good manager is going to have a good idea of what market rent is. 
So it was the little stuff, all the common areas. We had to rip up the carpet, repaint the floor, all the walls, ceiling, redo the whole common area, the, the hallways, the staircases, and the bathrooms need to be redone. They have the old pink and yellow tile, <laughs> very outdated. So we're redoing bathrooms on turnovers. We're renting new units at 13. We didn't raise the current tenants to 13 because, you know, they're, they're people and that's that's too much of an increase at first and we also don't want everyone to leave it's a business if everyone leaves you don't have the revenue to pay your bills yeah exactly so we're slowly getting there i'd say average rent right now is probably around 11 11 1150 but by the end of next year it'll probably be close to that 13 number and that was a syndication so i include the 15 units in my send in my unit count even though it's a syndication it's kind of a Depends on who you ask in the real estate world, because you'll have some investors who say, I have 5,000 units, but they own 5% of the 5,000 units compared to the guy who owns, (laughs) exactly, compared to the guy who owns 300 units for 100%, he has 100% equity. The the unit count can be a a bragging metric. Yeah, exactly. So I I do include that in my 50, but I only own about 20% of that building. So run me through the syndication process. So you guys went out, how long do you have, like, do you get this thing under contract? And then you're like, Hey, we got to raise this number and then investors can get in at certain number. How did that all work? So it was supposed to be a very fast closing and that didn't end up happening for a number of reasons. It was a whole, uh, ingress egress issue that we still have an attorney working on we don't have to get into that that's just no no on the the survey but as far as the offering we raised i i'm just saying for using the syndication as an example like because this is a different type of real estate than what you did with your lender so this one's slightly different so how does this syndication from your side work um not a random individual could do this, but most of the time the real estate investors are the ones syndicating and then individuals are putting in. But how did you guys, for this example, how did that work? So we raised capital from investors. It's very similar, but those investors get a stake of equity in the deal and they're limited partners or LPs. Bill and I are the two general partners or GPs on the deal, also known as the sponsors. And the GPs have different roles to, to play in the business. We call them buckets. One is the capital raiser. Someone has to raise the money. Someone has to asset manage. So there's going to be a property manager, a bookkeeper, all the bills. You just have to manage the asset, make sure everything's running smoothly. There's someone that has to uh, sign the loan, sign the bank loan. And that key principle gets a portion of the equity just for putting their name on the dotted line. There's also risk capital. So all the money that you put in and due diligence that you might not ever see again, that's risk capital that you get equity in as as a general partner. There's also deal finder. Deal finder can get equity as a general partner. So I'd say syndications are the best tool for the ordinary W2 person to get into large scale multifamily investing as either a deal finder or an equity raiser. If you can go find great deals, or if you can raise a lot of equity, you can automatically get into syndications as a general partner. So Bill and I split up these different buckets. He was the key principal because I didn't have the net worth for it, obviously. He was the risk capital because I didn't have the capital. The deal finder, we split that. Asset management, we split that, which was really generous from him because he's teaching me how to asset manage as we do it. And then uh, the capital, we split as well. Okay, got you. Capital so raising. all of those different roles, different roles, everyone can take a piece. Um, I'm definitely going to have to re-listen to that <laughs> just because yeah, that was interesting. I've never heard it broken down like that on how people can get yep. involved. And I, I can give you the different percentages. These are just our baseline percentages. Like I said, the equity is usually 30%. The deal finder is usually 10%. And those can change. And you look at it as a big pie. So when I say 10%, that's only 10% of the GP portion. So if you're looking at the big pie, you're going to split up the GP and the LP parts of the pie based on the deal. I'd say an industry standard is 70-30. I like to give more to the GPs. And I say, if it can't absorb giving more to the GPs, it's probably not a good enough deal to do. 
we'll just say for to make it easy that the GPs and LPs split the pie 50-50. So if you find a deal and it's a 50-50 deal between the GPs and LPs, you can get the 5% equity. So 10% of that 50%. Okay, got you. 10% of the 50%. Because the LP is going to raise all the money. Yep, LP are thing, the people another- giving the money. Yeah. yeah. And there's, like I said before, there's a lot of legality that goes into it, a lot of red tape because this is registered with the SEC. We're talking about 100 page documents from them with all the different rules and regulations. Another thing to know is that if you're going to be a general partner, you legally have to maintain a role in that business. So you can be the deal finder, but then you have to have some type of asset management or something that you can add on to that so that you're, you're a part of the deal moving forward. Okay, got you. Got you. Yeah. I don't want to get too stuffed on this, but I definitely will have more conversations about this because this there's so many, there's so many good books on real estate invest or uh, syndications. I think the best one ever is uh, the best ever syndication book. <laughs> and that's what it's called. Yeah. And there's so many good books that you can read. And if, if you want to get into this stuff, that's, that's definitely where you start. Yeah. I'll definitely put that in the show notes, just the best ever syndication. So Let's fast forward. So we get there. We're at 25 units now. What is what's number 26? So number 26 was actually a single family house in Tampa, Florida. And okay. that was that was a special one for me because ever since moving back here, I've been deathly afraid of having to deal with New York winters the rest of my life. <laughs> I love I love upstate New York, May through October. There's nowhere else I'd rather be during that time. But November through April, I don't want to be here. So I knew I wanted to split time between here and Tampa. I wasn't really sure how to do that. And getting this single family house gave me the freedom to be able to go back and forth. And where, um, how'd you go about this one? So I started looking in Tampa pretty early on because I knew I wanted to prepare for that. And I was originally looking at multifamily assets because I was kind of trained by Bill that multifamily is the way to scale and go bigger. But the numbers in Tampa just don't make sense, as you know, because you've looked at properties down there. Yeah. And investors are buying stuff in Tampa right now, just gambling on appreciation. And they're losing cash flow. <laughs> and at our stage, we can't lose cash flow every month. That's not realistic, not feasible. So the only answer to me was to go short-term rental because you're going to get a much higher cash flow with a short-term rental. And I, I love the model of doing a short-term rental and an appreciating market because that's a way to double dip and get the appreciation and the cash flow. So I'll say a shout out to Dominic Brescia. I don't know if you know Dom, but he is a, a rock star realtor. So he helped me out a lot in the process. Yeah, of course. So let's talk about this. We got short-term rental. That's essentially Airbnb or VRBO or any of these. Yep. Someone comes in for five days, they go, done, you send a cleaning person in, boom, bam. Yep. So this was actually my first time spending money on real estate (laughs) because the duplex, like I said, I profited on the eight unit. I didn't put any money in the syndication. I didn't have any money in. Down in Tampa, I had to do a 5% primary residence loan, which is still very low, 5% down. We're still taking advantage of leverage here. And I'll be at that house for six months of the year to to fulfill that primary residence loan requirement. And I had Dom looking for something that he thought would be a good short-term rental because he also has short-term rentals in Tampa. He knows the area, he knows the market. I wouldn't have been able to pull that off if I hadn't sold a four and a half million dollar building in Albany about a month before, a couple of weeks before. <laughs> so, I mean, we're really threading the needle here. I mean, I think I closed like a week before I went down to Tampa on it. Really? And that was just yeah. you doing a real estate deal? That was me being a matchmaker. Yeah. So one of the cold calls that I made with Bill, <laughs> we ended up talking to a seller and this was a 14 month sale from the time I first called this guy to when we closed and I'd follow up with him every couple of weeks. And he eventually agreed to let us try and sell his building off market. And we found a buyer for the building. So we actually found two buyers. We got two offers and we, we did an off market transaction. Okay. So, so then that pretty, gave you the pretty, commission. Yeah. It, it helps a lot with the commission when you get the buyer and the seller, you're not splitting that with another broker. And so that gave me the commission in order to go buy a Tampa house and furnish it. 
I think I spent I spent more on the furnishing of this house than the actual down payment. Because I got it, I got it for four seventy five, and with five percent down and closing costs, it ended up being like a little more than twenty five thousand. And I yeah. put like forty thousand into the furnishing just to do it really well and make it look nice. You know, I want oh, like hotel quality. Floors, new everything. Yeah, yeah. So I, I finally made some money with real estate. There's actual cash in the bank account, and then just out the window within like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Back to broke. I love it. <laughs> Back to broke. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's awesome. So that's number 26. How do we get to 50? Yeah. So that was, that was the most recent one. Uh, that was, that was a big one. That was a 24 unit here in Niskiyun in New York. And I got that one also off market. There was a, an investor who I knew who his son actually went to university of Tampa with us. I won't say that. I don't know if I should share his name, but that's how I met him again. It's just networking. So I was talking to him one day about what he had going on. He told me about the five or six different deals that he had on his plate. And he mentioned this one. I was like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. It's the town I grew up in. It's a brick building. It backs up to a park. There's so many reasons why I love it. I said, hey, can I, can I buy that contract off you? I'll pay you $100,000 just for you to assign that contract to me. And he said, no, it's, it's too good of a deal. I can make a million off it in a year. And I said, yeah, I understand. No worries. Called him back like five or six days in a row. I said, Hey, yeah, my mom was five years old going up to that park, swinging on the swing set (laughs) because my great grandparents lived on the park. I'm sending them pictures of my mom there. I'm really pulling heartstrings, doing everything I can. And eventually got him to say yes to assigning the contract to me for 125,000. Wow. So in essence, he wholesaled it to you. Exactly. Yep. Without, Without intending to. But the, the hardest part about this deal was that I had two weeks to close on it. And it's a $2.2 million contract <laughs> with a hundred $125,000 assignment fee. And just like the eight unit, when he called me back, I, mean, I think it was like a Friday morning, he called me and said, hey, hey, Steven, I'll, I'll, I'll sell that to you. Can, you. can you really pull this off? Yeah, I, I can pull it off. No, no problem. Easy. I got it. I had no idea what I was going to do, just like the eight unit. Yeah. And you just started dialing up the phone book (laughs) yeah it was it was a tough two weeks i just called everyone that i knew i mean not a lot of sleep during those two weeks and this was recent i closed on the building june 22nd so under a month ago and i I called up everyone i knew eventually got the head of commercial lending at one bank to suggest that i reach out to one lender that lender ended up working with and he ended up lending 1.8 million on the property and then I ended up getting 600000 from another private lender who I gave 20% equity to. So it's all about just piecing it together. Wow. That's incredible. No, it, it, it really is fascinating how it just all comes together and those decisions are made in that moment, in that instance, and you just go, yes. <laughs> like, yeah. it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But you have to, you have to take the initiative. Like, at the closing table, the lender who lended 1.8 he was telling me that he had a buddy who wanted to buy it off me for 3 million right away. So I oh, raised, wow. I raised 2.4 on this. I could have profited just 600 took- like the next day just by flipping this. And I really thought hard about that. It's a life changing amount of money, but I know I could make more in the long term. back to delayed gratification. But if you don't take the initiative of first bugging this guy for a week straight and then finally saying, yeah, I'll do it. You don't even have that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So the opportunities are came in with connecting with people, speaking with them. And that's what I've always found. It's not that you were intentionally going, Hey, I know you have like uh, the first conversation I'm saying with him was real estate investor to real estate investor. Hey, what's going on, man? What are you working on? And then you get excited about it because they just start opening more information and then it becomes the opportunity. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's how can we help each other at first? You know, what do you have going on and let's get to know each other. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that that's one of my favorite things about the real estate is that everyone feels like it's I think the common like the common thought on real estate is hey, like I'm going to buy this, this is going to be my home. This is where I'm going to live. But when it seems like you get into the real estate investor world, it's like hey, like how can I help? Like what are we doing? What are we working on? Like can we maybe parlay something here? And like there's so many different roles and there's so many pieces 
And it's just putting it all together and you have to work with other people, even yeah, if you it have is your to. own deal. Exactly. And because of that, everyone's so open to networking and helping each other. I mentioned the little bit of clothing and hat business I was doing. You try asking the owner of a clothing company, like, hey, where do you manufacture your stuff? They're just going to laugh at you and block your number. You ask a real estate investor, like, hey, who do you lend with? They'll talk to you for 20 minutes about it. They'll write a letter to the guy saying that you're a great person. It's so different how open to helping everyone it is. Yeah, because who knows if they're the ones looking for the deal and you know somebody who can get them the money. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely you're motivated for yourself, but I think people here genuinely want to help each other too. Yeah. Yeah, because it is life-changing wealth and it is something that... And one of my favorite things about that last story about how you're like, oh, I could have gotten the three mil the next day. That's 600 grand that opportunity never would have happened if you didn't stick your head in there and go, what you, what you up to, man? And then to have the audacity to go, I'll pay you 125 for the contract. Like, you know what I yeah. mean? It's just, meanwhile, you're sitting there and you're like, I really have no money. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I, 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 still, I still don't have any money. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say, I, I don't want to brag on this. I just want to show what's possible. I did hit a million in net worth on that 24 million, that 24 unit acquisition. I still don't have any money, but I'm I'm okay with it. I'd rather be dirt rich and cash poor. Yeah, that's amazing. And I I love that you're at the million net worth because it it just teaches you what a real asset is and what's a liability and where's that value in between. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Which might be we could dive in later, but that's why there's so many correlations in between financial literacy and real estate. And most people don't put those together because they're stuck at that. Let me do my let me do my job and like keep my head down and maybe I'll get a promotion. <laughs> and it's so hard to break that routine, like we said. But if you're gonna do it, doing it in your 20s is so much easier. Absolutely, absolutely. So I know we got a couple minutes left. Let me look. I know we got a couple minutes left. So I had a couple questions for you regarding real estate. Yep. Where did you? Um, so it doesn't seem that you're the hey, one size fits all. Like there's some people who only go multifamily. Some people only go single family. Some people do this. What's been your approach on it? And what do you think has led you to be successful? And like, say someone's new to the space, what do you think they should do? Yeah, so those are two different questions to me. One, there's different asset classes of real estate. You know, there's commercial, there's industrial. I know a guy who rents out garages to contractors and he is killing it. I mean, these are just like empty garages that he rents to contractors who put their tools in there and he's getting like 2000 a month for a garage. To me, that sounds awful. I don't know anything about construction really. That's my weakest point in real estate. That doesn't interest me. I say, if you want to start investing in real estate, find what interests you. I was forced to move into an apartment at 18. So I've always kind of liked apartments since then. And they just, they interest me. And now Airbnbs do too. So if you don't have that interest, it's not going to, not going to really work out in the long term. Maybe you like strip malls or restaurants that you can lease out. So find what interests you. And then if I had to give one tip to someone that's getting started, I'd say have a sense of urgency. Again, going back to falling in the routine, it's easy to let the days and weeks and months pass. But if you don't feel like, hey, I have to get 10 units in this year, or hey, I have to close on this 24, it's easy to let stuff just go by. And if you don't have that sense of urgency, someone else will. I, I, I really love that because I, I completely relate with that. When I got this condo, it was, I was telling someone the story, but I was like, yeah, I literally gave myself one week. <laughs> like, I just said, I'm doing it. And they were like, you, did you, how did you decide in a week? I'm like, I, dude, I had my numbers. I had my criteria. The Zillow thing matched up. Like, I didn't even look at Zillow. Like, it was just like, it happened. And he's like, you weren't searching every way. And I'm like, no. Like, I just found something, had a trusted realtor. It works because there is something I've been pondering pretty uh, deeply these past couple of weeks is like analysis paralysis, which I think a lot of people get into, which is where you overthink things versus the due diligence process, which is really understanding and making a decision. So, those can get teetered and there are a lot of times where individuals, like whether it's leaving a job, whether it's starting a new endeavor, whatever it is, there's a lot of times where we find ourselves in this, we're doing due diligence, but then we jump into analysis paralysis and it's like, 
dude, make a decision. <laughs> yeah. Like Bill, Bill and I have talked to people who work at W2. They've spent, you know, $100,000 on courses and training and they haven't bought any real estate. And they've been analyzing for four or five years, spending all this money and they just haven't pulled the trigger. I mean, you hear the stories about someone who can like lift a car when their kid's under the car. And that's a very extreme example. But when you have that sense of urgency, the things you can do definitely change. Absolutely. So it's really putting the timeline, putting on um, what you want to occur, whatever that goal is, going out there and making it happen. Um, Steven, this has been phenomenal. Like This has been so much fun. I love hearing the journey. I know this is going to help so many people and especially um, people our age in their mid twenties, like who are like, I'm trying to get one house. Great. Here's how you can do it on a bigger scale. Here's how you can do it on a smaller. Here's what you can do anything you want, but it's just a token of possibility. So Steven, for you, where can people learn more about collecting real estate? Where can they learn more about you? What, what, what do you want me to put in the show notes? Where, yeah, just I'm, I'm happy just talking to you and chopping up real estate, but if this helps one person, that's amazing. The Collecting Real Estate Podcast, where you can hear Bill and myself, we, we publish two episodes a week. They're usually interviews very similar to this. There's collectingrealestate.com. There's more info on us. And hamillrealestate.com has more information on our syndications and brokerage. If you want to contact me, my email is Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at hamill, H-A-M-E-L, realestate.com. And my phone number is 518-860-6430. Feel free to reach out anytime. Awesome. I'll throw it all in the show notes. Stephen, this has been phenomenal. We'll have to do another one soon. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.